Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. We are in season two. This is story number eight, and uh, we're actually getting into the solstice stories. We uh, are going to do these stories in three parts, part one, two, and three, over the next three weeks, which will bring us right up to Christmas and the holiday season, and uh, I hope you enjoy them. Once again, we have Scott Lewis with us, of course, the author, Chuck Stead, myself, and Joe Rosaline. <laughs> Rosaline. Rosaline. Yes, or they Americanize it, Rosaline. Rosalind American. I like the Italian version because I'm an Italian guy, so I'm going to say Rosaline from Whoa. now on. <laughs> <laughs> Roll that R, man. Do, the, do that again. Rosaline. You guys. There we go. It's all coming out now. <laughs> all right. And so with no further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here's Chuck Stead with part one of the Solstice Stories. Well, first of all, I had no idea that Grandma Cramshaw even knew a Christmas story. From what I had gathered, she mostly believed in this thing called Solstice, Winter Solstice. Sure, she had a little Christmas tree in her kitchen in that cold northern corner of their house, and some folks had even seen her at the Presbyterian Church over on 4th Street for Christmas Eve service. Still, we kids knew this solstice thing was her preferred holiday. If a light dry powder snow fell before the 21st of December, then on the morning of the 22nd, we'd find her tracks going off into the woods and we'd follow them up a steep grade and soon find a little windbreak beneath an old oak tree, backed up against the cliff, and there on the ground a hard puddle of melted red wax from her solstice candle. And while the old lady was not heard to sing Christmas songs, she often often hummed this repetitive melody, and, well, there were no words to it, or at least none words that she ever shared with us. So when I heard that she had a Christmas story and that we might be a part of it, I didn't believe it. No, Chucky, my friend Ricky Cramshaw said. Graham's got a story that that ain't finished yet, and she needs help with it. You're nuts. Help doing what, talking to trees? No, she can do that without help. But this is something she needs some kids at. I don't know about it, Rick. I said this as we continued coupling Lionel train tracks onto the plywood train table that took up three-quarters of my bedroom. The dark green plateau was suspended on sawhorses, some 30 inches off the floor. This allowed for any wiring to be done down in the Lionel underworld. Walt supplied me with a kit of tools that included an egg beater drill, which was sort of like a hand drill that was mechanized to look something like a household egg beater. We railroaders climbed up onto the table. We reconfigured our setups, first sectioning out the track in a layout, then drilling new holes for the wiring. I was at the open end of the table. I was laying in some switch track, and I said to him, Hmm, I thought this solstice thing was was all about staying up on the longest night of the year. It is, it is, but she wants to do something else too. He turned around and squeezed under the ceiling eave, careful to avoid the Plasticville Hospital where we sent all our train wreck casualties. I looked at him, and I asked the question, Rick, do you believe in Santa Claus? He looked at me, with little change in his expression. He said, Chuck, you're asking a boy whose grandmother believes her pig monster dogs carry earth spirit in their fat bellies. Yeah. Chuck, when you're a cramshaw, you believe in most everything. Anyhow, thems that don't believe in Sandy Claus, they don't make out as good as thems that do. 
But Rick, I mean, as long as I've lived, I've never seen anything like Santa Claus. It's like kid stuff. He nodded slowly. Your problem ain't Sandy Claus. Your problem is Muffin. And this was true. Growing up with my older sister, Muffin meant losing faith in, well, the Tooth Fairy, Santa Claus, all the saints, all the guardian angels. And at this time, she was actually working on losing faith in God. Ricky reasoned with me. Chucky, I've been watching how the Christmas gifts are fewer each year as my older stepbrothers stop believing in Sandy. Don't you see? you got to believe to make out good. So the only reason you believe is for more presents. Mm, yeah, I suppose. Muffin says, come Christmas, all you need to believe in is the almighty dollar. Ricky picked up another section of track. He looked at me and said, well, I believe in everything. The whole works, and I bet I get more presents than Muffy does. Muffin had lately taken to reading beat poetry and was now wearing black leotards and bulky sweaters. She and her friends took the bus to the city and they came back looking skinnier and tougher than before and they would stink of foul-smelling cigarettes. She listened to records made by the singing nuns. The singing nuns were on the Ed Sullivan show. Tessie, who watched the show from her ironing board, would say she couldn't believe that nuns were allowed to earn money for singing outside of a church. Walt was impressed because they showed the nuns riding around on little motorbikes in their parish. I'll be damned. Nuns on motorcycles. But, but, do you think, do you think they get royalties for that music? Do you think, shut up, my sister Terry said. The singing nuns are on. Tessie slammed the iron down. Don't you talk to me that way, young lady. I don't care if the Virgin Mary herself is on the Ed Sullivan show. Well, this reference cued me into another round of, why do they call her the Virgin Mary? Which Tessie sidestepped by telling me to be quiet. The singing nuns are on. But Muffin wasn't only a fan of the singing nuns. There was also Peter, Paul, and Mary, the Kingston Trio, and this new guy named Dylan. This music was different from the doo-wop sounds that she used to listen to. It had something to do with her muffinness, and it included her doubt and skepticism for every tale, every myth, every scrap of anything lovely from childhood. Her heated sarcasm over the holidays baited Tessie, and the two of them would go at it with a vengeance. Christmas was now a time of family conflict and doubt. Still, there was something something there, some little bit of magic in the air, not yet destroyed by my sister. Ricky and I were reconfiguring my Lionel trains when he brought up this issue about his grandmother. But we got caught up in train building, and we worked for another hour or so before he continued with the story. You see, to us, this business of model railroading was mostly taken up with the reconfiguring. Once it was built, you might enjoy it for a few weeks, and then you got thinking about new setups. And of course, there was always new additions to your gear that invited reconfiguring. And the current phase of new gear was the military. Yes, there was definitely something going on with the military. Toy companies everywhere seemed to be planning a kitty insurrection. The toy department down at EJ Corvettes in Nanuet had one aisle entirely devoted to automatic artillery. Hasbro and Marx both came out with massive collections of rubber soldiers fighting over plastic landscapes that included spring-loaded landmines, cannons, rocket launchers, tanks, and aircraft that exploded when struck by other toy weapons. The Cold War had moved into Toyland. We maneuvered the new line of Lionel military train cars into a defensive action. We would not be defeated. 
There was a flat car that launched six small rockets. There was a missile launcher disguised as a boxcar. The roof would split open and fire a rocket. It would explode on contact with another boxcar that would just blow up. There was even a car that launched a spacecraft into orbit. Choo-choos had gone buff. We marched our little rubber soldiers into a military cargo train, and we pulled it up over the plastic trestle in search of the enemy. The train slowly circled the plywood table until a rocket struck a train car, killing off half a dozen G.I.s. The enemy had given away its location. So quickly, the men from Hasbro returned fire with a missile that overshot its target and, well, landed under the radiator. I mangled a coat hanger into a usable shape, and I retrieved some long-forgotten objects with balls of dust until the rocket appeared. Ricky continued the war without me, killing off half the soldiers of both camps, but the battle was suddenly drawn into a new and unexpected turn when my stuffed dinosaur toy emerged from the far side of the styrofoam mountain. Yes, science had warned us that styrofoam experiments were dangerous, but we had not listened. The soldiers turned their weaponry on the monster as if their puny defense could stop the mighty Godzilla. Forced to retreat, they looked back in horror as the beast destroyed Plasticville. Suddenly, they could run no more. For now the nightmare worsened when the little army discovered that their world ended at the edge of a table. Some of them jumped to their death into a monstrous linoleum reality never before known. Others became dinosaur lunch, and a few escaped along the track bed. They climbed into a vintage steam engine. They fired it up. This train backed into what was left of Godzilla, into Godzilla's butt. Wait a minute, Ricky stopped. Since when can a train push over Godzilla? Hmm. This was a good question. The Godzilla we knew from the movies usually kicked trains, planes, and assorted military vehicles all over the place. I looked at my stuffed dinosaur toy and agreed it was a bit weak as a Godzilla. We were picking up the soldiers, tossing them back on the table, when Ricky noticed an old toy that I had liberated from under the dusty graveyard beneath the radiator. He picked it up and separated a stringy ball of fuzz. It was a hand-painted Santa figure. Look here, this old Sandy toy, it was under your radiator for like a thousand years. Well, not quite a thousand. He set it on the windowsill and he stared at it. Okay, let's just suppose there isn't any Sandy now. I mean today. Do you suppose there ever was a Sandy? First of all, I corrected him. It's Santa, not Sandy. And, well, sure, stories like this always have some place that they start, somewhere where it's real. He shook his head. No, there is something else about this Sandy and Christmas thing that is very, very real. Then he looked out the window, through a clutch of oak branches and across the street to his parents' house. You know, Dougie had a bad Sandy thing happen to him. Ricky turned around and leaned against the corner wall. Seems my mom brought him to the Bergen Mall... And there was a Sandy there where you could get a picture with him, you know, sitting on his lap and all. And, well, there was a line, you know, a long line. So Mom says he can wait in the line. She goes into the store to shop. So Doug is waiting, but pretty soon all that orange juice he drank in the morning starts to work on him. Only he don't want to lose his place in the line. By and by, he's nearly doubled over, being all filled up with pee. Then it was his turn to sit with Sandy. The Sandy helper picks him up to put him on Sandy's lap, and she give him a good squeeze in the gut. So now poor little Dougie is about to burst. Well, 
Well, there he is on Sandy's lap, and this old Claus, he, he hugs him, squeezes him, and shouts, ho, 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 and asks him, what does he want for Christmas? But, but Doug, all he wanted to do was go to the bathroom. And then this Sandy asks him again, and he squeezes him again. And, well, Sandy found out what he wanted. Dougie peed on Santa? Yeah, he feels awful bad about it. Figures he surely won't do well at Christmas. Cried about it in the car. Mom tried to tell him that Sandy wears pee-proof pants just in case, but it did no good. I think that's why Graham come up with this idea of us being in her Christmas story. You know, seeing Doug all busted up like this. So, when are we supposed to be in this story? Oh, it's a few days before Christmas on solstice night. Ricky, you said it was a Christmas story. Well, yeah, it's, that's what Graham says. She says it's the closest thing she got to a Christmas story. Well, the holiday season was upon us. In our house, it always began with Tessie starting her holiday cleaning spree. At this, she was intense. Cleaning, scrubbing, turning things over, breakage was part of the tradition. Grandma Stead's collection of vases, which Tessie never really cared for, dwindled in number over the holiday seasons. This was the year Walt's stuffed owl was smashed. It happened when she was trying to vacuum around the living room. My folks never lived in a house that was big enough to accommodate their oversized furniture. Rooms in the Hilburn house were compact and the furniture usually demanded most of the space. This, along with the fact that her vacuum at that time was an Electrolux, a wheelless model, the kind with the sled runners, which caused the hose to pile up whenever you turned around. The owl never had a chance. When this bird, which Walt had stuffed some 30 years earlier, toppled over, Tessie tried to catch it before it hit the floor, but only managed to dismember its tail feathers. She charged into the kitchen with the stuffed raptor under her arm, and there at the table she worked to reattach the tail with a flank of safety pins. When next Walt saw it, the poor old owl looked like he had suffered some horrible orthopedic surgery. It was moved to the cellar. For years after that, Walt claimed that the sorry old predator kept the cellar mouse-free. Ricky and I came downstairs and found Tessie in the living room. She was decorating Walt's large-mouthed bass with glass Christmas balls. This compromised the dignity of the eight-and-a-half-pound record catch at Cranberry Lake. There were ornaments dangling from every fin, and a huge red ball settled into the bass's open mouth. Ricky said, "'Christmas fish!' And he started singing, Christmas fish, Christmas fish, Christmas, Christmas fish. She had also decorated the deer head with tinsel and hung a long glass drip ornament from the pheasant's beak. Tessie was just wrestling our furniture into a corner when Ricky remembered that I was supposed to bring some present along to be in his grandmother's story. Chuck, it's something you got to make. You know, you got you got to make it out of things that you find in the woods. Sure, you can do that, Tessie said quickly. Sure, whatever. Good, good idea. Go out. Go out in the woods. So we wrapped ourselves in our winter coats. We marched up First Street. Ricky was thrilled that I was to join them in their story. But I was still not sure about this. I mean, I was already doubting Santa Claus. I wasn't much in the mood for any of old Grandma Cramshaw's magic. At the top of the street, we saw her coming. Slow-moving winter witch that she appeared to be, coming down Mountain Avenue, all bundled up except for that cotton-white hair blowing free in the wind. A chill swept in off the throughway and up the dead-end street to where we stood. It was a thin wind, seasoned with road dust from clear days of dry cold with little promise of snow. 
as the old lady moved toward us. I kicked at the frozen road, and a sharp pain crawled up through my toes into my boot. Ricky announced, I was to join them in their story. She looked at me, her weathered face filled with the ancient history, each wrinkle carved deep with the record of those who came before her. She nodded slowly, and in a soft eggshell voice, she said, This won't be like Christmas you ever known. This is a different kind of story. Ricky piped in. But you said it was a Christmas story. She nodded. Yes, closest thing to a Christmas story I got to do with. And then she looked deep into me. You better bring something made from something found, or things won't go right. Wow. What a cliffhanger. (laughs) Yeah. We got a cliffhanger. That's a good one. Man, oh man, I'll say. You covered a lot of territory in that one. We got trains, we got the Cold War, we got Mm. Dylan, we got Peter, Paul, and Mary, we got Sing, Nun, Dinosaurs, Godzilla, the monster linoleum reality. (laughs) And is there a Santa? Yeah, you might need to put a little uh, caveat at the beginning just to warn everyone that we're talking about some very important childhood things. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Yes. You're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Question of Santa reality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you see where it goes. It'll, yeah. it'll get mm-hmm. us there. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. What do you think, Joe? I think it's a good one. Yeah. I like it. And uh, yeah, it hits home in many ways. Uh, as soon as you said Godzilla, that, remember, it was like, I think it was the uh, Channel 9 or something. Yes, it was. <laughs> and they would, yes. W-O-R. Right. They would run that movie every night and, and what finally killed Godzilla? Let's see how many people know the answer to this. It was a thing. That, it had a name for it. And there was a, a scientist with a patch over one eye who de- who dis- developed it. It was an X-ray gun or something? Was an uh, atomic uh, something? It, it, it could have been, but, but they actually had a name for it. And he, like a ray gun? Uh, no, it, they tried guns. They tried ray guns. Was they tried like bombs. A, was it like an injection of something? It it was something that they put into the water. Right. All right. Had a whole look and a shape and everything else. Yeah. And they called it the oxygen destroyer. Ooh. Ooh. The oxygen destroyer is what finally. <laughs> and you know, this is before there were any kind of special effects. No, no digital. Nothing. Well, Godzilla was a guy in a rubber suit. Yeah. Remember oh, that? yeah, sure. You could see him walking. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a guy in a rubber suit. You could see the, you could see the strings and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When they killed him, he was underwater. Yes, yes. And they were filming underwater, this this guy in a costume underwater. Then, then the guy goes down underwater. Of course, he sacrifices his life, the diver, which is in this old diver's suit with a bell on his <laughs> oh, head. Oh, they always had those else. guys moving slowly right. underwater. Right, very slowly. <laughs> like Diver Dan. And then he uh, <laughs> he turns on the oxygen destroyer and bubbles, just bubbles, bubbles, bubbles come up, which gets enough in front of Godzilla so that they can switch the picture from the Godzilla in the costume to a skeleton of Godzilla. Oh. All of a sudden appears as a skeleton. and So it was also it. a flesh destroyer. It yeah, oh yeah. Destroyed yeah, everything. Yeah, well, you know, the oxygen destroyer apparently... Without oxygen, nothing, everything goes away. Okay, so it's trivia time then, obviously. <laughs> who, who was the well-known American actor that appeared in the very first Godzilla movie back in the 1950s? That would be? I'll give you a hint. It's Perry Mason. Raymond Burr. Right, right. Raymond sure. Burr. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. 
who was a good actor. Yeah. And oh, then, yeah. And, and, and if you pay attention, this is the fun thing, you pay attention to his scenes, they're never in the same places that the people he's talking to are in. Right, right. <laughs> they, yeah. they, they filmed all his scenes, I guess, in, in a day or so. <laughs> Most of his scenes are reaction scenes. Yes. They just shoot him, you know, looking very, very concerned. His eyebrows, his furrowed brow, you know, like that. And the shock look, this look. And they must have just said, you know, uh, Raymond, just give us a look of shock. Okay, now give us a look of worry. Right, now give us a look right. of fear. And that's kind of what he did through the and entire... And the interesting thing is, you know, all those uh, Japanese films, those sci-fi films were Amer uh, American dubbed, English dubbed yeah. films. Yeah, yeah. But... Yeah. But they didn't have to dub him. No. Right. So right. he's talking to these actors who are Japanese actors who are speaking with American voices. And then he's speaking in his American voice. It was mm -hmm. extremely disconcerting to kind of figure this out. <laughs> right. So how did Godzilla come back to life again after in like all the other movies if they turned him to bones? A need for money. Oh, that's how, right? It was a financial this was decision. This before the multiverse. <laughs> he wasn't really, really dead. Yeah, right. When those bubbles came up, he pushed a skeleton of himself in place there so he could go off and hide till the next oh, franchise man. started. That was fun, though. I, and again, no, no special effects at all, but boy, we were glued oh, to the yes. TV. And you could watch it again and again and again for like a week or something. Yes, they would have it yes. on every day. Yes. You know, that kind of thing. Now, the trains. The trains yes. that you had. You said they covered three quarters of your room. Yes, I think they covered more like eighty or ninety percent of your room. There was a little place for my bed. Yeah, yeah, and you had to crawl under the table sometimes <laughs> yeah. to get to here you or to did. get to there. You did. They covered the dresser where the clothes were. You had to go and get to the clothes. The top drawer of the dresser became useless because that was right where the top of the table was. Yeah. So you the, uh, you only. Years late, not years, but sometime later when we moved the dresser, we found things in the top drawers that had been forgotten about because they got <laughs> they locked into in a little tomb. <laughs> right. Oh, man. It was, uh, to me, you know, when I'd sleep over, I was just like, I'm sleeping in a room with a train set that's bigger than anything else in the room. <laughs> oh, man, I loved it. And that was the, you know, the regular Lionel yeah. big cars and everything yeah, yeah, else. Yeah. Oh, it was cool. You had a set of Lionels too, and I had the cars, the little blue, I remember a blue car with a little rocket launcher. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the blue house, roof, yeah. You, right, you hit the house, and the house was spring-loaded, so it would, it would blow up when yep. the rocket hit. Yeah, <laughs> yep, that's yep, right. Yep, yeah. I, I just had a little oval track, but that was still cool. Yeah, no, and you're right. The um, Cold War really had a profound effect oh, on yeah. toys and everything. It was really... Oh, yeah. yeah, we had, you know, little plastic machine guns. I remember um, the little spy suitcase for 007 with yeah got little bullets out of it all kinds of crazy things and yeah. it was it was only years later that they insisted a little red tip be put on toy guns so that right. they would be designated toy guns because people were using toy guns to to hold up people with because they looked so real yeah and that's what yeah. changed that over yeah but that you know up until that time military type toys were little green soldiers basically yep. mm -hmm. oh, that was it but then when it kind of got real and we were all rehearsing, you know, for air raid drills and things like that when we were in, right. in school, uh, all of a sudden the toys came to the rescue, you know. Joe, do you remember at the Elling House that they got this huge set of Silver, Silver War toys? It was a massive, the, the grays yeah. and the blues, the soldiers, the north and the south, the Yankees yes. and the rebels, and all these little horse-drawn wagons and these little cannons. And they also had spring-loaded 
terrain. So you could have the little horse carriage going over the terrain and hit a button and it would blow up. Yeah. Remember that how they had tons of those. Yeah. And they were made of like a metal, like a die cast. Yeah, yeah. 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 They were they yeah, were they well were. they were probably yeah. lead and probably <laughs> that's what's wrong with all of us now. Oh, we <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well so for the week that we were off, this would be in the late seventies and early eighties, when my brother and I were off from school, we were allowed to take over the living room. With Lionel trains. Oh, wow. So we were able to go in front of the couch, around the couch, to the back of the other couch, you know, so you really had to... It's like they had tunnels that they could go through. It was a, uh, not even underneath, but like you would, I don't know what you would call it. It was almost like a kidney bean shape. Uh Wow. And my mom said the only thing, you have to leave enough room for us to walk past on the one side that you could get from the... First part of the, the condominium where we grew up to the kitchen. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so for the week that we were off, for, we, t- we must have taken like half a week to set it up. We played with it till the night before school. And then we had to take everything away in like, it must have been an hour. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. But those things were, th- I mean, trains were big back then. They I were mean, very big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember I was late to the party because, you know, we just... They were kind of expensive, you know. You had to really. Uh, oh, but you had a great set in your basement. I finally I talked about that in one of the stories. Yeah, I finally, I finally got that set. And what did it was, uh, I was outside playing with the kids, sleigh riding, and everything else, and I broke my my uh, ankle. Uh, I went somehow at sleigh riding, or I can't even remember how it happened. But I broke. So so you there got I housebound. am. You got housebound. I got housebound, yeah, wow. and I'm looking out the window, and the kids are all slipping and sliding, doing the sleigh riding, and. And my parents finally said, "Oh, we got to do something. We gotta, you know." <laughs> and that's how I got my first train set. That was a it great took, set. It took a broken leg, by God, but I got it. <laughs> you <laughs> stuck that foot right under the car. <laughs> that's why you don't remember it. <laughs> we had a local train here in Garfield, not far from here. Now, as a kid, I used to go there with my father. You can buy you open. It was a regular Lionel store. It was, it was incredible. Yeah. It doesn't exist anymore. It did close up. Probably the mid-60s. Out my way right now, today, the town is probably Lafayette. They have a train museum there. Mm. Yeah. And it's a very extensive set of, of the old Lionel trains. I mean, really extensive. Mm-hmm. Like a, a room that's, I, I want to say it's 60 feet long by maybe 40 feet wide. Yep. And it's just full of every kind of... There's a, there's a train club in Carlstadt, uh, too, that has it set up. And I think once or twice a year, they open it to the public. That's where it's kind of relegated to now, you know, just these kind of museums. and these. Well, you know, you, you, you think about toys and toys then. Now, now we're... We're all going to sound really old here. <laughs> We've been sounding old for We've a while. Been sounding old okay. for, no, I just <laughs> noticed yeah, Joe, it now. Joe just said it. I think we are. <laughs> we yeah. are. Uh, those toys were... They had a level of interactive that you could participate, like the setting up and the breaking down the setting up. And mostly today, kids play virtually. And so the interact, and it's funny because in marketing virtual gaming, they talk about interactive. But it's, it, to me, it's a bastardization of the word because interactive used to be, you could lay your hands on these things. You could alter right. their roots. You could create, like we used to make little buildings out of popsicle sticks, you know, and then right. we would right. include that in our setups. and mm-hmm. Or like we'd have Godzilla attack the trains, you know. There was a physical reality to that kind of interaction. And I really think, and I'm kind of emphasizing this here because I'm feeling it, that it encouraged the hand-eye motor skill business that's yeah. so important to a child 
I mean, I, sure. I was under the table using the egg the uh, egg beater drill to to rewire and rewiring. You know, I was learning how to, to wire. And I mean, these are skills. That's right. We don't have toys that teach these skills. We yeah. have virtual stuff. You're absolutely right. With my kids, I just I got a big piece of plywood and a bunch of pieces of wire, and I created a, a number of circuits on it. And I was that's how I taught them. Well, this is a great start to the three part solstice yes. story. We're going to uh, close this off. Look forward to next week where we talk about part number two of the solstice stories. Move into the solstice time. Yeah, these are full of lots of interesting things to remember and talk about. So I can't wait. Thanks, guys. But wait a minute. Before we go, we have one more special treat. Mr. Joe Rosalin is with us today and for each of the next two weeks. And during this holiday season, Joe is going to help us get into the spirit with his wonderful talent on the dulcimer. It's the instrument that sounds like Christmas. So, without any further ado, here's Joe Rosalind with Good King Wenceslas. Take us out, Joe. for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their $20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions? and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? 
Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the Children's Chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Children's Chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652, MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stett. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning, so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story.